grace may abound or so that good may result. And Paul says, for people that say this, for someone who says, I'm going to go out and I'm going to watch porn today so that God's grace can come over me and and cover me. (laughs) All right. I'm going to go ahead and do something really bad because God will forgive me. It'll be all right. (laughs) It'll be okay. You know what what the Apostle Paul says? He says, their condemnation is deserved. In other words, grace ends. There's no grace for that kind of person. There's no grace for that kind of attitude. For that Christian who speaks this way, because the unbeliever probably does that all the time. It'll it'll be a new day tomorrow. Hey, God's got a different angle on that person. We're talking about Christians who are living a Christian life that say, I'm going to go gratify my fleshly desires, and God's grace is going to cover me. I'll be all right. God says grace runs out for that kind of situation. There's no grace for that kind of situation. That's taking advantage of God's grace to gratify myself. All right? For the person who says, I'm secure in my salvation. I was saved. I can go out and party and do whatever I want to do. God says, "Uh uh-uh, there's no grace for you. (laughs) No, that's not going to work. Don't take advantage of my grace that way. No matter what your view is on eternal security, and I'm not going to go into it right now, but if those words ring a bell to you, no matter what your view is on eternal security, the Bible is very clear that no grace is left for the person that behaves that way, that takes advantage of God's grace. All right? There's this man back in the 40s. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he was, he was a Ger- German Nazi dissident. In other words, He was opposed to the Nazi regime. And one point, it's interesting, his life was really interesting. He was a theologian. He studied the Bible. He was a godly man. He went down, I think, even into Spain and and had some kind of internship down there. Ended up back in Germany at the height of the Nazi uh, conquest that was going on. And he wrote this book called The Cost of Discipleship. The Cost of Discipleship. And in this book, he describes this view of grace. He called it cheap grace. Cheap grace. Now, is grace cheap? No, it's very expensive. It was bought with the precious blood of Jesus. But the person that views grace this way cheapens grace, and that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, uh, explanation, is don't cheapen God's grace that way. God's grace is expensive, it's precious, and therefore we can't use it to our own advantage. We need to just receive what it does and let it displace all the mess in our lives as we saw last week. All right, the fact of the matter is grace changes our desires from bad desires to good desires. If grace isn't active in our life and we're just using grace as an excuse to do whatever we feel like doing, that's not grace at all. We've missed appropriated God's grace. God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and is critical, listen to this, to the sanctification process in our lives. Sanctification means we're growing closer to God and growing farther away from the world. So the closer we get to God, the farther away we get from the world, that's sanctification. Another word for holiness, the Holy Spirit wants to make us holy, and grace is an important means 
of getting to that place. So we can't cheapen grace. Number two, number two attitude is found in Hebrews 10, 26. In the following verses, it says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received, there's that word receive, the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Grace ends. There's no more covering of our sins. We're a sinful Christian person that's without grace, and we're not going to stay Christian for very long in that kind of situation. If we deliberately keep on sinning, we'll talk about that. Deliberate means willful. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to go do whatever I feel like doing it, and no one, no person, no God is going to tell me different. I'm going to go do it because I feel like doing it, and we thumb our, our, whatever our face in God's face, and we say, I'm doing whatever I feel like doing. That's willful, deliberate sin. All right? Yeah, help us, God. No sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of what? Judgment. Raging fire to consume the enemies of God. This is serious business for Christians. Do non-Christians do this? Yes, all the time. They're in a different boat. God's grace is handled differently for them. When I'm a Christian, though, I better not be willfully sinning any longer and thumbing myself in, in his face. It says, how much more severely do you think someone who deserves to be punished, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted who? The Spirit of grace. This is the only place in the Bible that I find the Holy Spirit described as the Spirit of grace. The Spirit of grace. For we know him who has said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Number two, hey, if I'm a Christian, I better not be willfully sinning, deliberately sinning. This is different from the person who struggles with sin. I don't do what I want to do, and what I try to do, I can't seem to accomplish. This is all in Romans 7. That's not that person who's struggling with sin. And in James, it talks about they're enticed and dragged away from their, with, by their sin. They can't help themselves. They're a Christian. They're trying. I've been there on one sin four years, on another sin ten years. This is me personally, literally. That's not the deliberate sin we're talking about. We're talking about the person who says, I'm going to do whatever I feel like doing. I don't care what you tell me. That's deliberate sin. Someone, someone who's victimized by sin is different from someone who's a com, an accomplice to sin. All right? I've been victimized by sin my whole life, and I'm sure you have as well. <laughs> but God's grace helps the victim, but God's grace doesn't help the accomplice. Does that make sense? All right. So, willful sin. When there's willful sin, there's no sadness. So here's how you can kind of gauge. Am I willfully sinning or am I just struggling with sin? All right. The person who's just willfully sinning, they have no sadness over sin. They don't care. <laughs> They're just doing it. It's okay. But when you're sad, you're sad and you're... You just you're, 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 It's a tragedy what you've done. You, you have remorse. You're repentant. You know, that's a different story. All right. But this person who's willful has no sadness, no remorse, and they don't acknowledge that what they did was wrong. That's a biggie. 
They don't acknowledge what they did was wrong. I was counseling this couple a long time ago, probably long before I should have been counseling anybody. <laughs> but I was counseling this couple. And they walked in. We sat down. They were having marriage problems. And my first question, even as, as uh, newbie as I was, I said, are either of you in an affair right now? And they both said, no, we're not in an affair right now. I say, so, okay, so the, the marriage is salvageable at this point. Yes, absolutely. We just want to be able to get along. Well, three weeks later, I find out the lady had been in an affair, even where, when I asked her, right there in front, she said, no, I hadn't. She had already been in an affair for, I don't know, four weeks or something like that. And I noticed something about that lady. She said, it's not what she said. She showed no remorse. She showed no sadness. She showed no... It didn't matter anymore. And she said something like, well, God's grace has covered it. And I didn't know how to articulate all this, but now I would be able to answer and say, if you're, if you, if you're justifying yourself, there's no grace. God's not covering anything for you. It's that sadness, that repentance, that remorse, not condemnation, but remorse that shows that there's a repentant heart. And then grace covers you at that point. So when we call wrong right and call right wrong, there's no grace for that kind of situation for a Christian. It's like those whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron is kind of what Paul describes. It's somebody whose conscience doesn't even bother them anymore as they do willful sin. But number three, Acts 5, verses 3 through 4, and then verse 9 says, Then Peter, this is a crazy story. So picture this. Peter's there with the other apostles. Jesus has already gone into heaven. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. The church is, is moving forward powerfully. Thousands are being saved. And people would sell their property and bring the proceeds of that property and lay it at the apostles' feet. And then they would take that money and distribute it as was needed to various needs of, of people who had lesser means. And so in walks this man named Ananias, in Acts 5, and he lays some money at the apostles' feet, and Peter says, this is discernment, amazing discernment. Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you when you sold it? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think by doing such a thing uh, of, of doing such a thing. You have not lied to human beings. You've lied to God. And Ananias dropped dead right there in front of them. A couple hours later, his wife walks in. Peter asks her the same question. How did you conspire to test the Holy Spirit of God? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out as well. She dropped dead. No grace, no mercy. Why? She lied. He lied to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Christians. Do non-Christians lie to the Holy Spirit? All the time. Yeah, I did it. You did it. We all did it. We're talking to Christians right now. We can't lie to the Holy Spirit. Now, how on earth would you get to the place where you're lying to God? How do you do that? Well, here's how it starts. First of all, you lie to other people. When you lie to other people, eventually you'll lie to yourself. And when you start believing your own lies, then you lie to God. And there's no grace left. There's no grace left. 
We can't be liars. And I, I have a sense, because we talked about this in Sunday school, I have a sense that the Holy Spirit is concerned about this in some of our lives. No lying. You know who the father of all lies is? It's the devil. So when we lie, we're acting like the devil. Can a, a son or daughter of God act like the devil? Well, you better believe it. <laughs> but we shouldn't. And God's grace ends whenever we get into this type of situation. It says in Romans 1.25, they exchange the truth about God for what? A lie. A lie. God's people should not be lying. <laughs> and you run the risk of eventually lying to God, and God has no grace for those types of situations. Number four, James 4.6 and this is probably one of the biggest ones. It says, this is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor, shows grace to the humble. In this scripture, it's very clear. God does not show grace where there's pride. He does not show grace where there's pride. He will show mercy, apparently, but he won't show grace. You won't have God's favor in your life. It, all of these things are just like putting a lid on that bowl and saying, no, God, I'm not receiving what you have for me as a Christian. Pride and rebellious rebellion take us immediately out of God's grace, immediately out of, our, of God's grace. And we listen to this. You can't remain in God's love and be prideful at the same time. You can't do the same. As soon as you're prideful, you're not being enjoying God's love. He loves you, but you can't receive any of his love. Pride is an awful thing. In Leviticus 26, 19, it says, I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like bronze and the ground beneath you like bronze. Let me tell you what. When I'm prideful, I feel like, my prayers don't go above the ceiling. And you know why that is? Because they don't. <laughs> they don't go above the ceiling. Get rid of our pride. Stop taking credit for what God has done. Stop thinking about me, me, me. Pride is selfishness. Pride is all about me. We've got to stop being selfishly prideful and rebellious. And then our prayers will shoot up to heaven in a powerful and awesome way. God's grace will be in our lives abundantly. And we'll be able to see powerful fruitfulness in our lives. Why? Because we're receiving and overflowing. Hebrews 4, uh, excuse me, chapter 6, 4 through 6 says it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, Christians, who have tasted the heavenly gift, Christians, those who have shared in the Holy Spirit, Christians, those who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, who have fallen away, fallen away from what? Grace. <laughs> to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. And while the word pride is not used in the Scripture, I guarantee you that's what the Scripture is talking about. Pride. You can, when you're prideful, you can't be brought back to repentance. What has to happen? You have to be humbled first, and then you find the path of repentance back to God once again. So pride, the Bible says, uh, pride comes before a fall. We've all, as Christians, been prideful. And what does God have to do? He has to humble us so that we can be led back in a path of, of repentance. Look at Satan. He lost favor with God. What? for pride and rebellion. We're no different. 
We're no different. That shuts God's grace. Number five, shuts us off from God's grace. Number five, Galatians 5, verse 4, it says, You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. And I tell you what, us church people struggle with this one probably more than any other one, is thinking that we've got to earn God's... we got to pray harder. we got to pray longer. No, you don't. <laughs> God's grace does this stuff. It's not us. You wait before the Lord. You rest before the Lord. But your intense, fervent prayers are not going to move the hand of God. God moves his hand because he's sovereign, and he leads you to pray according to his will, and that's what moves the hand of God. Is our cooperative prayers. But thinking, I've got to pray harder, I've got to fast for 40 days, or I've got to go witness to... Th- I, at one point, I told myself, I told God, God, I'm going to witness every day to perfect stranger for the next 30 days. That's legalism, my friend. <laughs> That's legalism. I'm trying to earn from God something that only he can give. We are not a performance-based whatever with God. He doesn't look at our performance. He loves us for who we are. He pours his grace. But when we put that lid of legalism onto ourselves, we can't receive God's grace. And we'll stink inside. This is who God, Jesus got onto religious people more than anybody else. He embraced the sinners. <laughs> he embraced the lost. But the religious people, he, he virtually condemned. He hated. And we got to be careful not being religious people, but relationship people with Jesus. Yeah. Receiving from, receiving from, receiving from. And as parents, let me tell you what, this is vital. Teach grace to your kids, not discipline. <laughs> now, God's grace disciplines us. God's grace mercifully disciplines us. But the first thing a kid needs to know is how much they're loved. My kids need to know. I've told all four of them. If you get on drugs, you go get pregnant, you do what I will always love you. I will always love you. They need to know that. And we need to know that. All right? The more love you show, that line of communication is open. They might be out getting high and drunk, but they know mommy or daddy loves them, and they're praying for them. And they might stumble and fall, but I'm going to be there to, to pick them up. We need to know that from God, and as soon as we think we're trying to earn something from God, it shuts us off from God. It shuts us off. It's a free gift of salvation. I heard the preacher say this once, obedience is not, uh, is, is a fruit, it's not a root. The church that preaches obedience, you better obey God, you better obey God, the blessings of God won't come to you unless you obey. Well, you know what, first I need some grace, <laughs> and then I'll start obeying God. I need to know how much God loves me, I can reciprocate that love, and then I'll start naturally obeying God, I'll obey God, I'll obey God. Obedience comes out of grace. It's not a root of grace. Grace is the root, all right? So we see here, um, let, let me just read you a couple more scriptures about falling, falling from grace because of legalism. Romans 4.25 says, He, Jesus, was delivered over to death for my sins, and he was raised to life for my justification. I don't see my name in there at all. That's what he did. 
<laughs> I, can't, I can't outwork Jesus. Jesus did all the work for me. I just need to receive it. Galatians 3.3, 3, it says, After beginning by means of the Spirit, which is grace, now are you trying to finish by means of flesh? <laughs> and I picture myself that there's a waterfall in front of me, and that waterfall is salvation. So I walk towards that waterfall. I enter into that waterfall, and I am saved and washed and purified. Now, many Christians say, oh, now I get on the other side, and now i got to start proving myself to God. Baloney. Bullhonky. <laughs> no, I get in that waterfall, and I stay in that waterfall the rest of my life. In the waterfall of grace. Waterfall of grace. He's going to change my desires and make me into the person I need to be. That's why Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ, in the waterfall of grace. All right, if we're trying to earn God's grace, we've fallen from grace. Terrible place to be. But finally, number six, James 1.5, the sixth attitude that a Christian can adopt and be shut off from God's grace. And this is one that I've read to you a couple of times. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. It will be given to you. But if you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should never expect to receive anything from the Lord, including grace. <laughs> Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now picture that bowl full of a mess. We put a cap on it. The water's falling on it. God's giving, but that bowl is not receiving because it's got a cap on it. This is what this says. If you doubt, God will still give, but you won't receive. That's important to realize. I used to think if I doubt, God won't give. But that's not what the scripture says. This, uh, this scripture says, if I doubt, God will still give, but I just won't be able to receive what God gives. All right? Including grace. So doubting God is the opposite of believing God. We either believe God or we doubt God. Believing God, remember, is to open your heart to the Lord and receive whatever he's got for you. Doubting is that lid on top of that bowl that's slapped on hard and says, no, God. So look at Hebrews 3.7 and the verses following that, that that address us a little bit more. It says, so as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Doubt is a hardened heart towards God. It's a lid. It's a It's an obstacle as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your um, ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years um, they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they do not know my ways. So I've declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And that rest is the grace of God. They won't enter it because they're always doubting God. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart, a doubtful heart that turns away from the living God. So we see they were not able to enter the promised land, their rest. They were not able to enter grace. And let me stop here real quick. For anybody that's read the Old Testament in any length, wonders, what's today's promised land? <laughs> what does that look like? I, I, I sense there's a promised land I need to go to, but what is that? That promised land is God's grace. That promised land is God's favor in your life. 
spiritual favor, physical, tangible favor, favor, marital favor, kids' favor, the favor of God. That's the promised land. And we can't get into that promised land with an unbelieving heart. We shut off God when we do this. So let me just explain very quickly here. I'm not talking about a little doubting thought that comes into your mind. Oh, no, I've shut off God's grace. I'm, not, I'm talking about doubt that says, I don't believe what you say, God, is true. I highly doubt you even exist, and I don't even believe that you care for me. <laughs> Can a Christian talk that way? You better believe it. <laughs> I've, I've gotten close to that precipice before. And we can't afford to. As a believer, if we get to that place, of, I don't even know if I believe you anymore. I don't believe you're good, God. I don't believe you love me. God's grace isn't there. It's not in that place. All right. The Bible says we must believe that God, uh, that God exists and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. We've got to believe these things. So I'm not talking about an occasional doubt or unbelieving thought. We all have those. I'm talking about this fist, this, this anger that you might have towards God. Because look at just a couple of examples and we'll be done. Matthew 8, 8, 26. And we read about this already. The disciples are in that boat. There's a, there's a storm. Paul, Peter walks in the water, almost sinks and drowns. Jesus saves him, puts him in the boat. And what does Jesus say? He says, oh, you of little faith. But he doesn't say, my grace has departed from you. Ichabod, get away from me. <laughs> he didn't say that. He said, you're struggling in your faith. I understand that. You have doubts that come into your mind. I understand that. I want to help you. And let, let me show you what you do. You go to Mark 9, uh, Mark chapter 9, and you see this man that had some doubts, but he said, Jesus, help me believe. And Jesus said, I'm, I'm willing. I'll help you believe. Let, let me read it to you. These disciples came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw a large crowd around them. The teachers of the law were arguing. It was a big, just chaotic mess. As soon as the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder. They ran to greet him. And he said, what are you arguing about? The man in the crowd said, teacher, I brought my son who is possessed by a spirit that robs him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at his mouth. He gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive the demon out, but they couldn't do it. And Jesus says, oh, you unbelieving generation. And you know what? He was talking about his disciples when he said that. Did he say, no more grace for you? No, he says, this is a process. You're getting there, but man, it's frustratingly slow for you. <laughs> he says, you unbelieving generation. He said, how long will I stay with you, my 12 disciples? How long will I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. The, spe the spirit saw Jesus and immediately threw the boy into convulsion. He fell on the ground, rolled around, foaming in his mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been this way? And he said, from childhood. How many children are tortured nowadays? Breaks my heart. He said it often throws them into the fire or the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, Jesus, take pity on us and help us. And he said, Jesus says, if I can, <laughs> am I even dealing with unbelief with you? Everything is possible to him who believes. Everyone, everything's possible to the person who opens their heart to God. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do, I, I, I'm 
this is the way I see it, Happy. He says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. That's what you do when a doubt comes in your mind. That's what you do when unbelief floods your mind, as it did even this week for me. Unbelief flooded me. I just reached out to Jesus. I said, Jesus, help me keep believing. Help me not to doubt, Lord. Please help me. And you know what? God, just roll that garbage back, that blanket back from that wet blanket. You know how you get oppressed and everything seems dark and dingy and the, the, the future seems bleak? God rolled all that back in a matter of hours, man. I had the peace of God all over again. So I'm not talking about that kind of doubt. I'm talking about the doubt where you're clenched fists towards God and saying, I'm not even sure you exist or that you love me. All right? But then at the end of the story, Jesus counsels his disciples. This kind comes only out by prayer. What do we have to do to overcome unbelief and doubt? Spend time with God. Spend lengthy times with God. You say, I don't have time. I tell you, you don't have time not to. (laughs) You don't have time not to. Make time for God. I make time for God while I'm driving to work. Do you? I, make, I, I could consume that time with all kinds of other things, but I make time to God. Wait, and now I'm trying to get up a little bit earlier and spend time, wonderful time with Jesus. And you find little gaps of 15 minutes here and 20 minutes there and, and make time for God in all those nooks and crevices of, of the busy life that you have. Make time for God and it'll overcome and overwhelm your, your doubts and, and your, your unbelief that we all struggle with. But six attitudes that shut Christians off from God's grace as documented in the Scriptures are these. If I say, I'll go on in sinning that God's grace will abound to me, pfft, no grace for you, brother. <laughs> There's no grace left. Number two, I'm going to sin because I want to. I could care less what God thinks. That's deliberate sin. There's no grace in that situation. I'll lie to God about what I'm doing and cover my tracks. No grace for you either. I know better than God, and everything that I've accomplished is my doing. I'm prideful. It's me, 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 me. No grace there. Number five, God thinks highly of me because I'm such a good person. (laughs) I remember once doing something that I thought was really awesome and telling God, God, you must be really proud of me. And God, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, I don't love you as much now as I did yesterday when you were messing up. Love you the same. All right? And lastly, I don't believe God. What God says is true. I highly doubt he even exists. I don't even believe he cares for me. No grace there either, man. We've got to get past our doubts and believe God. Let's pray.